0: great. Well, it's lovely this morning to be able to uh, welcome Johnny Mellor to come and be with us. Johnny's been with us for the weekend. He was uh, hosting our Faith and the Arts event that we had yesterday. We had, a, I think, nearly 50 people here uh, considering about uh, creativity and Christianity and how those things work together and uh, how we can be called by God uh, to be, uh, well, all that he's got us to be, particularly in this uh, area of, uh, of the arts. And it's been really lovely having Johnny uh, with us to do that. He's uh, excellent inspiration on that and uh, helping uh, people to get networked a bit more. Uh, Johnny and I met when we were at university. I I think he was just about graduating as so I was just arriving in Birmingham and I managed to get out but he's been there ever since. Um, <laughs> he's, uh, he's part of Church Central which is a New Frontiers uh, church in Birmingham. He's one of the leaders there and uh, it's just great to have Johnny with us this morning so let's welcome him. Oh, the stories I could tell about Luke! <laughs> Doesn't realise I've got the next half an hour, or so does he? <laughs> um, it's really great to be here, guys. Uh, greetings from Birmingham. Um, we we're, uh, I guess, we've got some similarities to you guys. We're, we're a church that's looking, we're looking to serve our city. Uh, you know, I think years ago it came up in there 20 year, years now, I think, and came up from kind of all the guys who plan our church from the home counties, like Hampshire and Surrey, and places like that, and I think we came thinking to Birmingham. We're coming to take Birmingham for Jesus, you know. And I think it dawned on us, after a while, actually, no, we're here to serve Birmingham. <laughs> There's a slight difference. And I can see from you guys that you're, you're doing the same here. You're serving... Uh, this city, and some guys who've moved in, some kind of study, some who've lived here since you were born. Uh, brilliant to see, and it's, we had a lovely, lovely time yesterday. Uh, just, um, I'm married to my um, wife called Gemma. I've got three kids, Isaiah, Hope, and Rex, and they were all planning to come up, but it all got administratively complex, so I left them. In fact, I sent them even worse than Birmingham. I sent them to Bedford. Oh dear, what have I, what have I done? <laughs> Which is where Luke's from originally, actually. So anyway, uh, <laughs> but it's been great. Loved the, hanging out with a number of you guys from here, some other kind of uh, Christians who are in the art. Yesterday, I loved your vibrancy and your faith. It was it was wonderful. Uh, There was one thing missing for me uh, until just a few minutes before we started. Though there was no one into my favourite TV show, Uh, but luckily Nathaniel and Waise like the Good Place, so that's all right. Yeah, and uh, if you don't, you're missing out. It's worth Netflix just for that. So uh, anyway, Um, I'm uh, one of the main areas I work in is in the area of the arts. And um, myself and my wife, I, I'm a rapper and I like to write a little as a hobby, I, I suppose. My wife's a photographer and an illustrator. In a few years, we started something called Sputnik. Yeah, it's up there. That's good. Nice. Wow, it's good to work. Um, I won't do that with every slide, by the way. I know how these things work. We have PowerPoint in Birmingham. Um, but we, we, so we started, we started Sputnik is essentially a network of artists uh, based. Uh, initially in in our church and then in our our part of New Frontiers. We are cousins, I guess, in that sort of regard. We're from the Catalyst in in New Frontiers. Um, uh, But increasingly serving those in the wider body of Christ as well, Um, in England, in Scotland and beyond. uh, You know, Um, And so I am going to be touching on creativity today. Um, That is kind of the theme that's in there. But I want to talk about something that underlies a lot, really, of what we do with Sputnik. Uh, this morning, and actually this evening as well. is so something that is relevant to everyone. Some of you will be like, oh, it's that arts guy. I just don't care about the arts. And you can breathe a sigh of relief. There's something for you today uh, as well. I want to speak about something that underpins all that we do with Sputnik, and that is about influence. I want to speak about influence. And uh, influence is something that we all have. Every one of us in this room will have influence. Everything you do and I do positively or negatively affects and influences other people, so it's a universal thing. But I want to talk about a specific type of influence, uh, which is more of a cultural influence, a, a significant, wide-ranging influence to shape the culture around us. Um, and I think that kind of influence is a little rarer uh, than that. And i like to start looking at this topic. Really, what the question I'm going to be asking is a question that lots of people in the evangelical church are asking at the moment, is how much should the church involve ourselves in trying to influence the culture around us? I don't know if you wrestle with that uh, here at at King's. In a a very cosmopolitan and influential city like this that many uh, real culture shapers have come from the city and are living here now, how do we play a part in that? Does our, our, like Nathaniel's word earlier about the two tribes, as we we look to know, we embrace our new self in Christ and we we reject our old self. Yeah, we, we do that. But does that mean we retreat from culture Or how can we involve ourselves in those things that maybe were things we were involved in uh, in our old lives before we were Christians? And what part do we play there? And what part should the church play there, as well as us as individuals uh, as well? And to look at this topic, I'm going to look at the book of Acts. And if you've got a Bible, um, if you could turn to Acts chapter 13... Yeah, you guys are better on the physical Bible front than we are in Birmingham. It's like, have you got a Bible? What's that? It's on my phone up there. It will appear up there as well, I think. Um, But I'm going to. We've preached on this as part of our series uh, on Acts. I'm just going to give you some context. So, when I last preached on this, we already had a a series of sermons. But to give a bit of a very brief overview of of Acts, Uh, the book of Acts is, is the story of the birth of the early church. And it really is split into three clear sections that are kind of marked off by what Jesus said to his disciples just before he has ascended to heaven at the beginning of Acts. He said to them, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 1 in Judea, all Judea and Samaria, two, and to the ends of the earth, three. There's a three-phase plan there. Okay, Jerusalem, the locality, uh, the city, Uh, Judea and Samaria is the rest of Israel, really, and the ends of the earth is outside of uh, Israel. Okay, and so the book begins, the book of Acts, Uh, they start in Jerusalem, as Jesus said, and Peter's the main guy, and the church grows in Jerusalem, and then it goes to Judea and Samaria, the surrounding regions. Philip goes to Samaria, Peter travels around a little bit more, and then we see in this part of the the book, uh, the gospel and the church is moving outwards, outside of um, of Israel, to what they called the ends of the earth, okay? And Acts 13 is when things really kick off, because it's Paul... Who uh, Paul is the key player for the rest of the book of Acts. If you're a fan of Peter and you get to Acts 13, you're like, oh, weeping, because he doesn't really appear much anymore. It's all Paul from this point, um, really. And this is the beginning. Paul has three missionary journeys, the next 15 chapters of Acts are those missionary journeys. Um, and he, uh, this is the first escapade in his first missionary journey. It's the very beginning. It's a significant point uh, in the book. And... Um, so that's the bigger picture. So let's zoom in very tighter and then we'll read the passage. It's what's happened here is the leaders of the church in Antioch, of which Paul is one of the leaders, they're having a prayer meeting and they feel the Holy Spirit telling them to send Paul and another leader, a guy called Barnabas, uh, off to the regions beyond, to the ends of the earth. Okay. Are we all up to speed? That was a pretty whistle-stop tour. So the question is, are you ready to see how the gospel starts to reach the world outside of Israel? Yes. Yeah. Are you ready up there? It's good. I'm going to do this thing. I like you up there. You're good. Okay. Um, Are you ready to see the Apostle Paul getting into his stride? You're not ready for that, are you? Anyway, you know, one out of two is not too bad. Well, anyway, Acts 13, 4 to 12. I'm going to read this. The two of them, that's Paul and Barnabas, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elemas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elemas and said, "'You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right.' You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed that he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Okay. What a start to Paul's missions! I mean, you couldn't ask for a better start. Than that you have an actual sorcerer doing battle with Paul. I mean, this is great. This is right. If you want to start it off, with start with a bang. This is how you do. It. I always think of this like uh, in the Lord of the Rings with, with Gandalf and Saruman. <laughs> and uh, in this, though, uh, Paul categorically wins. The whole divine blindness from the sky thing—that's a nice touch. If you're fighting a sorcerer, okay. This is wham bam. This is a great start. But but the funny thing here is. Well, all the stuff that draws our attention in this passage is the magic stuff and the sorcerer and the blindness and all that stuff. That's not the main focus of this passage. The main focus is a different character who is much less colourful, but he's clearly the key here. And his name is Sergius Paulus, okay? You might say, well, why, why is he the focus? Well, two reasons, I think. Not only does he end up believing in Jesus, he's the one who becomes a Christian here, but he is potentially the first proper Gentile convert to Christianity in the book of Acts. Now, I want you to think about that for a second, because some of you will be now thinking, "Mm, I'm not quite sure that's correct, actually, because there are another couple of candidates for that role. So if you know the book, you'll know that earlier Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, definitely a Gentile, definitely a non-Jew, became Christian, became a believer, joined the church. The Ethiopian eunuch also uh, was, the clue's in the name, not Jewish, okay, he's from Ethiopia. Um, He became uh, a follower of Jesus as well. But the thing with those guys is they would have been classed as God-fearers. And that was a, a particular group of people at that time who weren't Jews, uh, ethnically, but they had certain sympathies with Judaism and would be familiar with a lot of the Jewish traditions. Okay? Sergius Paulus, as far as we can see, was not a God-fearer in that way. It looks like he had no association with Judaism at all. Okay? John Stott writes this. John Stott, famous Bible teacher. He said, Luke surely intends us to view Sergius Paulus as the first totally Gentile convert who had no religious background in Judaism. So that's important. So immediately we think, whoa, this guy's significant. He's not doing all the other stuff, but he's significant. Okay? So, what do we know about him? What do we find out? Well, we find out he was an intelligent man. I mean, that's always something you'd like someone to put, like, <laughs> unless you're a woman, then you'd put intelligent woman, obviously. But if, if people remember you, he was an intelligent man. But the more important bit was he is, his job is named. He is the proconsul of Cyprus, okay? Now, for those of you who like official definitions and would like to know what a proconsul is, here is uh, for you. Uh, proconsuls were Roman magistrates who headed the government in a senatorial province where no troops were required. Okay, so if you're into definitions, that's for you. For the rest of us, uh, he was the big cheese of Cyprus, okay? That's, that's who this guy was. Uh, I'm imagining, it's kind of speculation, but he's kind of somewhere between an MP and a prime minister. He's not got autonomy, because he's in the Roman Empire, but he's, he has significant cultural clout uh, in that place, okay? He is a man of significant cultural influence. In this case, quite clearly, political uh, influence. Now, I, when I go through the Bible, I like to constantly ask... Why did the author write this bit? Or why did the author include this bit and not another bit? Because Paul surely could have talked about a whole lot of other things on his trip uh, to Cyprus in this sort of way, but he doesn't. And when you also find something that's so significant, the first story in his first missionary journey, that question should ring up much, even, much louder, you know? Like, why, why is this the focus of the first story? Actually, I think as we look at the rest of Acts, we see the answer to that is pretty clear. Because what Paul is doing here is emphasising a feature of uh, what Luke is doing, the writer of Acts, sorry, um, is he's emphasising a part of Paul's calling that isn't often uh, talked about widely, which is Paul was a man who was called to engage with people of significant political influence. That's built into his calling right from the start. And you see it from... If you rewind in Acts, you see it as you fast-forward in Acts, okay? So let's just do it quickly. If you've never read it, I'm going to spoil the whole book for you. Sorry about that. Um, But um, uh, let's go through and see what happens, how this plays itself out, because Sergius Paulus sets a trend that we see happening again and again and again in the book of Acts, okay? So in Acts 18, uh, Paul stands before another proconsul, okay? A guy called Gallio in Corinth, and uh, Gallio rules in Paul's favour on that occasion, okay? Then uh, once Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, in Acts 21, well, then it really starts to kick off. Then he starts really moving through the ranks. Because at this point, he stands before a guy called Felix, okay? And Felix is a procurator. Now, just so you know, proconsul here, procurator here. This is the next level up, okay? It's a governor in a more important territory. And uh, Paul gets to share the gospel with, uh, with Felix, which is fantastic. Uh, Acts 24, 24, he sent for Paul, that's Felix, and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, what an opportunity but Felix doesn't really listen uh, that much, and he leaves Paul languishing in prison, which in a way was bad. I'm sure Paul wasn't very happy about that. But it does give him the chance a few years later, while still in prison, to meet another procurator, a guy called Porcius Festus. Okay? And again, Paul gets to share something of the message of Jesus with this guy. And Porcius Festus... He's so intrigued by Paul. When two of his mates come around for dinner one day, he says, I've got to introduce you to this guy, Paul. And they happen to be uh, king, uh, king Herod Agrippa and his wife, Bernice. And so Paul moves from proconsul to procurator to actual king and queen. He's really moving through the ranks uh, here. Okay, And he doesn't just share the gospel with Agrippa. Okay, He virtually goes whole, full hog for the altar call at the end. And Agrippa sees where he's going. Are you going to make me a Christian so quickly, uh, Paul? Um, but that's what happens in Acts. 26. Agrippa, again, he doesn't quite take the bait. He doesn't go for it, okay? And uh, what happens is Paul is sent off to Rome, and uh, after stopping in Malta, where, incidentally, he happens to heal the chief official of the island's dad. Can you see a pattern developing here? You just don't bump into those people normally, okay? Uh, then he, he goes from there. He ends up in the capital city in Rome, the, the centre of all cultural influence in the world at that time, Okay? Now, we don't have any accounts, really, of, of Paul's brushes with the movers and shakers of Rome, but, I mean, you've got enough. Luke's given us enough to know, probably, who he was schmoozing with while he was still in prison, but he was a really, this is a category F prison or something. He's, just, he's allowed to do what he wants, and it says he's preaching the gospel and the message of the kingdom freely at the centre of the Roman Empire, Okay. So the picture Luke gives us of Paul is that he's someone who God leads time after time after time to people of political influence and more often than not wins their favour for himself, but for the church and for Jesus as well. And sometimes in in a number of cases become Christians. Okay, That's what happens if, if you fast forward in Acts. You might ask, well, why? What, like, why? Why would he do that? Well, Luke's already answered that if we rewind in Acts. Because if we go back to Paul's conversion, we see it told us in Acts chapter 9. Okay? This is what happens. When Paul is saved, okay, the guy who, uh, who kind of prays for him, a guy called Ananias, uh, he hears uh, from God. Well, God tells Ananias this. He says, "The man, this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Okay? That's funny. I've read the conversion of Paul loads of times. okay, Loads and loads of times. But I would always missed that middle bit. I was like, yeah, Paul is known for... Uh, yeah, Obviously, he shared the gospel and the message of Jesus with Jewish people. Obviously, because that was the vast majority of the church at that time. And Paul is well known for being the guy who takes the gospel to the Gentiles. Yeah, everyone knows that. But look at the other group in the middle. He was given a specific calling for specific people a specific social group within Gentile society, and that's to kings, to significant cultural influences. So what's going on here? Well, I think what's going on is this. is After centuries of preparation, in Acts 13, finally the mission of God's people is going out from just the Je- ethnic Jewish people to the Gentiles, okay? But how does it happen? It happens because it's spearheaded by one guy, Paul, who goes to all sorts of people, but who at the heart of his calling in breaking through into that new territory has this calling to one area of society, to kings, to people of special cultural influence. Now, I just want to say this point. I don't think this is because God thinks that kings or people of influence are more important than other people. I think it's really important to underline that. Okay? If there's any bias in God's preference towards people, it's the opposite end of the spectrum to those who are marginalised, who are discredited, and are, are poor and weak and vulnerable. Okay? That's clear in Scripture. So it's not like he's favouring these guys. But I think what's happening here is God, we've got to realise about God, he's wise to the way that we're wired. He's wise to human society and how things work in in our our heads, but also in our cultures. Because however it happens, and whether it's sensible or not, human beings have always chosen to listen to some people more than they've chosen to listen to other people. That's that's how it works. We've chosen to listen to, to value some people's opinions more than other people's opinions. Human cultures are not shaped equally by everyone. However, much people would like to think that's the case, that's just not how it works. So, for example, Nicola Sturgeon's voice carries more weight than my son's primary school teacher's voice. Funny that really isn't it, okay? For better or worse, okay? But that's how it goes. And then in our culture, though, it, it may be slightly different from in their culture. Because it's not just politicians that carry that sort of weight. It would be fair to say that Ed Sheeran's opinion on something is likely to be more listened to than the MP for Edinburgh, I would guess. I don't know the MP for Edinburgh, but I would imagine that's the way our culture sorts itself out. Okay? Cultural influence is not just in the hands of kings anymore, but it works very, very similarly. And you might ask the question, it'd be a good question, is this right? Is it right for, for Ed Sheeran to have that sort of influence over our culture? not really, Um, but, but we can ask that until we're blue in the face. It doesn't matter. It just is the way our culture is. And we know it, and we all know it. And you know what? God knows it too. And whether those people should be in those positions or not, in God's determination to win back fallen people, more often than not, he chooses to work within our fallen ways of doing things. And I think in the area of influence, this definitely seems to be the case. So in his plans then to make inroads into Gentile culture, God chose straight away to raise someone up to go straight to the movers and shakers in society. You can get that from the the story of Paul, uh, but also, actually, this is not an isolated case in the Bible. If we zoom out even further, this is what God always does in the whole of the Bible, okay? It's, it's, it's funny, this, recently I thought, oh, this isn't, this is Paul, where, where is this? And as you look at particularly the Old Testament, you see this happening again and again, okay? It seems that to advance God's purposes at pretty much every stage throughout the Bible, he does exactly the same thing. I'll show you what I mean. Let's go way back. Let's go right back to the beginning. God, God uh, he's decided to persevere with humanity, not to wipe us all out in the, in the flood. He says Noah, doesn't he? And, and he decides, right, I've got a plan for you guys. And so, a little bit like he says Abraham, chooses one guy, an ex moon worshiper, and he says, right on you, all nations will be blessed for you. You know what? This is this is my plan in operation. And Abraham actually has kids and his kids have kids, but he's essentially an extended family, okay? Uh, but the question is, how did God turn Abraham's descendants from an extended family into a people? They needed to become a recognisable people. Do you know how he did it? He's called Joseph to a king. That's what he did. Through a whole series of misadventures, Joseph is brought to a place where he wins the respect of Pharaoh, okay? And he becomes himself second in command in the whole of Egypt. Again, Egypt, the key uh, centre of culture in that part of the world at that time. Joseph receives the ear of the king, and in turn he gains his own cultural influence. And how does he use it? He uses it to, to save Jacob's family from starvation, which would have been a bit of a downer for the promises to Abraham's and all, Abraham, and gives them a home to live in, the people a home to live in, where they can grow further, Okay? So it's done that way. Well, let's ask another question, the next stage. How did God turn his people into a recognisable nation? How did that happen? He called Moses to a king. That's what he did. So God engineered it, that uh, the Moses uh, was kind of, in some way, built into the Egyptian royal family, and he used those connections that he had when he came later back into Egypt, having been away for a long time. Everything was odd how he just wanders into Egypt and goes... Hey, Pharaoh, let my people go, okay? Just so you're aware, you don't do that in countries nowadays. Just walk up to the ruler and say stuff, and you didn't do it in those days. So why wasn't he being kept on hold talking to a civil servant on the phone or in a big queue? Why? Now, because God had put him into a position of cultural influence already so he could have face-to-face conversations with Pharaoh, Okay. And as a result of all that, uh, God gives Moses the ear of the king to eventually get God's people out of Egypt in a way that would glorify God most. I know there's more to it than that, but that's important in the whole thing. And it allows uh, God's people to become a nation uh, in their own right. So that's another question. Uh, We we know, uh, I, I think we know, from that point, things go a bit wrong for Israel a little later, and they sin against God, and they get exile they get kicked out of uh, the promised land and uh, but God's still got a purpose for his people Israel but how is he going to preserve them in exile to stop them losing their religious identity and actually stop them from being wiped out entirely well actually I could use a number of very similar examples here but I'll just use one he calls Esther to a king you know the story Xerxes the Persian king agrees to kill all Jewish people across the whole empire. It's an awful thing. Okay? And also, obviously, again, how's God's purposes going to stand if, if all the Jews are killed in that way? But no, God's, God's a step ahead. He usually is a few steps ahead. He has already raised up preventative measures. He's got one of his people in the palace as queen who uses her influence and foils the entire plot to keep God's people in existence. Calls Esther to a king. Final one. How, then... Does God get his people back from exile? You're never going to guess, guys. Seriously. calls Nehemiah to a king. It says in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. And uh, I've always seen that as being, oh, poor old Nehemiah. He's this like a slave, a menial position in the palace. No, no, no. He's a really significant guy. This guy's a trusted, like, advisor of the king, okay? He's been raised to that position, and he uses that position. He uses the ear of the king again to get the king's favour for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and for the returning exiles, okay? Again, it's someone called to a king. All throughout the Old Testament, how is God advancing his purposes? Well, of course, he's looking for his people to be uh, holy and to keep to the covenant and all of that stuff. We know that, to be so, for social kindness, all of that stuff, okay? But at the same time, it seems he is looking for individuals to be raised up to places of influence at just the right time to further his purposes, and with Paul, as his purposes move on in the New Testament, we see he's at it again. Now, the question for us here is theres there it is. That's the, that's the picture. That's the big picture, I think, of where we're going to be today. We've looked at scripture. We've looked around how it fits into the Bible story. But the obvious question, any time we look at the Bible, is, okay, then what does that mean for us? How does that affect us today? And I've got three things I think we, we need to learn or think about in this whole area of how we apply or don't apply this sort of stuff uh, today. And the first is this, uh, the church needs more Christians who exercise significant cultural influence today. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the church needs more people who exercise significant cultural influence today. When we look at the Bible, we see that without gaining the year of kings and without some of God's people rising to significant cultural influence, the people of God would not have made it out of the Old Testament. I don't think they would have made it out of Genesis, actually. That was a vital piece of the puzzle. I think similarly today, we could put it like this. Unless some of us, as God's people, gain significant cultural influence in our nation, it is very, very hard to see how the kingdom of God is going to advance again in a significant way in our nation say, so, yeah, but we're just going to pray and we're going to build our church and all of those things. Yes, of course we do those things. But if the other thing doesn't happen, it's very hard to see how that's going to work because throughout history, God's always used the other thing happening by raising up people to places of influence. We're going to need Esthers to stop lobby groups making laws that cripple churches. We're going to need Josephs to influence with wisdom that bring balance and stability again to our country. We're going to need Pauls who are able to carry themselves very well with people of cultural clout and see some of those people come to know Jesus. It's essential for the advance of God's kingdom. First thing, the church needs more Christians who exercise significant cultural influence today. But secondly, and maybe surprisingly, we should be wary of chasing after cultural influence. We should be wary of chasing after cultural influence. You might have thought this was a big Wind up to the crescendo that goes, abandon everything else in Christianity. Let's just go for influence. That's what we've been missing, the key to revival, okay? I just want to put my feet gently on the brakes towards that crescendo and just kind of say, I think we need to move from that position, I stand by everything I've said, kind of carefully. And I've got two reasons for care and wariness at this point that I think... I think widely in the evangelical church, I think we need to hear. I'm not saying you guys. I think this is what need to hear. I think we all need to hear it. But in the evangelical church as, as a whole, there's a kind of push more and more in this direction. I don't know if you've noticed this. Have you heard of the Seven Mountains stuff? Does that ring? Nod at me if you've ever heard of Seven Mountains. Okay, not many of you guys. It, a lot of guys, particularly in America, but it would be more over here, is like, here are the sectors of society, and we're all guns blazing for those now, and we, because that's the key. We've been missing out on this stuff. And there's a tone to it, I think, that is kind of gung-ho and a little bit empire. I think we need to be careful. And we need to be careful for two reasons, I think. Okay? And firstly, we've got to recognise that when we talk about influence, we have a very significant vulnerability in this area that, if we're not aware of, is going to come back to get us. That the Bible locates the uh, major, fundamental weakness of human beings as, as what? I'm going to put this to the floor. What, what do you think the major weakness of human beings is? Pride. Yeah, absolutely. Got it in stereo from both sides. Okay, both correct. Well done. Pride is is our main weakness as far as the Bible uh, says. And uh, whenever we approach influence, we're going to be very, very close to that because there's a very fine line between I want influence so I can advance God's kingdom and I want influence because I want influence. It's my time to shine. I deserve to be heard. I deserve for people to listen to my voice. Very fine line between those two things. Please hear me. Chasing influence for its own sake, even if it's masked with religious language, whether it's by by individuals or by a church, has a name. It's called idolatry, and it will end in nothing good for us. And whenever we approach this topic then, however good our motives, we've got to be aware of that. We've got to be self-aware enough to know that there's that danger. Second reason for wariness here is however you look at it, the Bible makes clear that there are far more important things for us to do, actually, than chase after cultural influence. Let's pick a random one out there. I don't know, something peripheral. Love your neighbour, let's say. Okay? You know, it's every now and again it's mentioned in the Bible, isn't it? Okay? The, the problem is, if people are very much chasing after influence, I want to make an impact out there. I want to change the structures of society. I want to do this. The problem is, our eyes go so far out there, we ignore the people we're actually called to reach, primarily who are our neighbours. What does our neighbours mean? Those who are under our noses. Okay? I'm too busy about changing the world. Oh, there's a person here that needs to actually know that they don't have a voice in society, so I'm not going to help them. Whoa, wait a minute. When we get to that place, we know we've overstepped a mark somewhere because we're called specifically to our neighbours who don't have the voice. That's where we're specifically called. And if one of them starts trumping the other in that way, it's a real problem. And so because of those dangers, it is interesting that in the Bible... While God shows a keen awareness of how the structures of influence work and how his people do need to interact with these, there is no instruction, as far as I'm aware, for us to proactively chase after influence. Instead, what we see in the Bible is that at the right times, when necessary, God raises the right people up to those sort of positions even when they weren't specifically chasing after it. Refer back to the, the passage that we've got. We see it here, Acts 13. Think of Paul. Okay, Paul had—I don't know if any of you, when you got baptized or something, where someone gave you a prophetic word of, of calling over your life. I don't know, maybe something like you're called to China as a missionary. I, I'd imagine <laughs> there's not many because you would be in China. Right? I imagine if that was the, that was the case, but maybe something like that. And and uh, you know, we weigh these things, and you think, oh, you know what? At the very best, I'm going to push doors, or maybe I'll go to China on holiday. Okay, or maybe I'll start learning Mandarin or something like I learn Chinese history or, or something. But you push the doors, don't you? So you've got Paul, who's got this word: you're going to be called to kings. And so he goes to cyprus on his first missionary journey it would make a lot of sense to him to make a beeline say right who's in charge around here let's go and just test this calling let's go and find him is that what happens in cyprus no no this is what happens in cyprus chapter 13 verse 7 the proconsul, an intelligent man sent for barnabas and saul how funny is that the the main guy sends for the guy who's called to kings (laughs) who would have thought okay how does that happen God called Paul to influence, then he proactively carves out the opportunities to make it happen. Now, with all that said, what do we do then? Is this a sort of just sit back and trust God sort of message? Maybe we'll pray for this every now and again. Well, actually, I think there are some things that we can do. And there's much, much more that can be said on this topic. But I want to very briefly sketch out what I think is the main thing that I think we should do as a result of all this. So, summary line. If you think it's kind of confusing, you've said one thing and another thing. What, what my position on this would be, that I see in Scripture, would be, I don't think the Bible teaches us to chase cultural influence. However, I think it certainly encourages all of us to make ourselves available for God to raise us into positions of influence if he sees fit. And there's a big difference between those two things. So my final point is this. Uh, make yourself available to be raised to influence if God wants to. Maybe. Actually, this kind of evidence probably isn't going to affect very many of us. But it needs to affect some of us, and all of us need to make ourselves available. All the examples I've used in the Bible so far have one thing in common. All of these guys were living their lives significantly outside of the gathered community of believers. Let's go through them. Joseph is uh, away from his family, been thrown in a well and sold into slavery, as you do. Okay? So he's away from his family, right? Nehemiah and Esther are in exile. The clue is the word exile there, okay? They're outside of the gathered community of believers. Paul is on a mission outside of the first century uh, Middle Eastern Bible Belt, okay? He's outside of that area. He's in Antioch, past Antioch, okay, going to Cyprus. These guys were living their lives in the thick of the world that God was calling them to influence. Now... I know in most cases he grabbed them and put them there reasonably forcefully, okay? But I think there's a very strong case to be made that we shouldn't need God to take such invasive action with us today because he's already told us that we should be living our lives out there. Jesus was incredibly clear on this. He prayed for us this. John 17, 15, he said to his father, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Don't take them out of the world, Father, please. But in fact, while they're in the world, protect them from the evil one. What did he mean? What he meant was this. Jesus wanted his followers then and now, thousands of years later, to be in the thick of our culture, to be rubbing shoulders with the world, to be taking our jobs deadly seriously. That's not the time of the week where you're just waiting for Sunday, where the real magic happens. No, we take our jobs seriously. We welcome people into our lives who don't know Jesus. We get properly involved in theirs. We don't just hand them flyers for events and tell them the two-minute gospel. Okay? We get stuck in with their lives and their, 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 their problems, and we let them in on ours. We serve our local communities. By taking them out of the world, what do you think Jesus was envisaging there? I don't think he meant, Father, please don't take them to heaven right away. I don't think that's what he meant. I think that the, the clearest way we can take ourselves out of the world is by actually retreating into our church communities. So being taken out of the world for us, we can take ourselves out of the world by treating our church community not as a springboard to propel us into the world, but as a bunker that we use to hide away from the world. Some of you here, you might have been thinking all along, you know what, I'm never going to be a mover and shaker in British society. It's just not going to happen. Now, Actually, for most of us, that would be the case, but we don't know, do we? But even if I give you that, okay, okay, fair enough, I'll give you that, I think we really need to take note of the direction of the, this part of the book of Acts. It really should speak to all of us clearly. Because what we have seen in this part of the book is Paul starting to go. He's going from the safety and familiarity of Israel and the, the nation he knew. Okay, The gospel has started to go in Acts 13 out from, the famili- from, from, from Israel and where it all started. I'd love to encourage every one of you. Live your life in the same manner. Go. Go. Get out there. For Paul, it was reasonably specific. It meant preaching to crowds, addressing synagogues, arguing with philosophers, and witnessing to kings. That's, it. That's how it looked for Paul. My guess would be, for many of us, it would look quite different to that. Okay. For you, it might simply mean building relationships with your kids' friends' parents. It might mean going to your work summer barbecue or Christmas party. Even if people are getting absolutely hammered. Even if there's stuff there you think, oh, this is a bit funny for me. No, we, we go to those places. That's what it might mean for you. Me might having your neighbours over for dinner. It's simple stuff. Even if your light actually never shines beyond those people, it would still be well worth you doing just those things. But for some of you who do that, God may have some other things for you too. He, he might want you to rise to rise your influence in your social groups, in your workplace, in your community, and even beyond. But actually, you have to be out there and available for that to happen. Okay? I wonder if in recent times it's like God looks down from uh, heaven and thinks, right, I know I, I've got a tried and tested plan of what to do with nations in a fix like Britain is. So our nation is in a, in a fix. It's, it's not going well in our nation. Just so you're aware of that. Okay, we can't... Charismatic optimism doesn't fix that problem, okay? See, it is in trouble, right? God doesn't down. but I know what to do. I know exactly what to do. I've always done it. What I need, I need a church that's going to be loving me and discipling people well and doing all that stuff. And also, I need to find some Christians who I can raise positions of interest. Right, okay, where are they? Where are, oh, oh, dear. They're all hiding away in their churches. They're so busy at church with the church program and that stuff that they've essentially taken themselves out of the world. That is not how to make yourself available to be raised to influence in society. Let's look at how to put it positively to finish. you know, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, Paul gives us his positive life. What should we do about this? I think he puts it really clearly. It's really a really funny way maybe to end a, a message that you might think it's very bombastic, talking about like changing the world and stuff. This is what Paul says. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. I don't think it's that. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul, the influence guy, who set apart for this stuff, how did he encourage Christians to live? Two things very simple, very important. Work hard in your jobs, live in such a way you win the respect of others. Work hard in your jobs. Your jobs might not be paid jobs, could be more the st- situation in life you're in, but it's not necessarily within the church community in that way, okay? We work hard in those, and we live to win the respect of others. I, I remember when I, uh, was a, I was a school teacher for a number of years, and I remember I, I met people who didn't do the first of these things. I met a lovely guy, and he was an elder at a local church, uh, and he was... He used to wear a John 3.16 tie to school, like, all the time. Every lesson, he'd find a way to talk about Jesus. Um, And I thought, wow, this is the guy. This is how you do it in the workplace, okay? I've got it. I've got a role model. But you know what? That guy, I don't think he warned anybody to Jesus. In fact, I think he called them to Jesus. Do you know one simple thing? He didn't care about his job. He showed no pride in his work whatsoever. And in our our teaching community, not every teacher does this, but we we cared about the kids. We, We wanted to help. We wanted to muck in. And he was like, I talked to him, he said, I'm just waiting for the weekend, I'm just waiting for Sunday, because that's the important thing. I'm an elder in my church, and I'm preaching. And he was, his head was there and he, his head wasn't at work and it was damaging for the kingdom of God. Okay? I might be wrong. Maybe I've got the wrong end of the stick there, but that impacted me massively. at work. We work hard at our jobs. That's a spiritual calling for us. We don't split things up like often is done in, the, in church life. There are a million reasons why those two pieces of advice are sound advice for us as Christians. I want to add just another to the list today, which is by working hard at our jobs and living in such a way we win the respect of others, whatever our fields may be, we make ourselves available for God to raise us, potentially to win respect even more widely than that. If we do little, we could do it bigger. And for some like Paul, it could even lead us to be called to kings. So, this message, I think, is for all of us. I want to be very clear on that. But I just want to end quickly by just praying for some of you specifically who may think, you know what, I feel particularly this, this calling in my life. Um, so in a minute, I'm going to ask you to... Uh, I think, I would, I'd think like you to stand, actually. That'd be great. In a, in a moment. And, and I'll just make that specific. And you might not fit in with exactly these two, but you still might want to stand anyway. That's, that's absolutely fine. There's no, no kind of hard and fast rules here. Um, but for those maybe of those of you who are already gaining considerable influence in your workplace or community... Some of you think, yeah, you know what? I never, I never went out for this. I just went out to just be faithful, you know? And suddenly people are coming to me and asking me stuff out there in, in the world, in, in your job or wherever. It could be you, you might just find yourself in that situation. Love to pray for you, okay? Could be some of you are active in certain areas of life in society that have potential for particular influence. And I'm going to give you four areas. There are others, and you might say, oh, I'm not in your list. Well, if you think this is still for you, please stand. But particularly, if you're involved in the area of politics, media, art, the arts, or business. You knew I'd get art in there somewhere, didn't you? You saw that coming. Anyway, right at the end. Politics, media, arts, or business. You know what? I'd love you to stand. It could be your training. It could be you're looking to do that. It could be you're working in those areas, okay? It could be just have a real heart for those areas. I want to pray for you, too. Because there's something just there is. This is the way is. There are some areas that have potential for influence more than other areas. Okay. Now you see they're not hard and fast rules. I've just made that clear. But if you feel you'd like to, like just stand. You feel like, I might be called to kings in this sort of way. Could you stand? And I want to pray for you. You can even stand up there if you want. Like uh, just don't fall off. I always get a bit wary with <laughs> these things. Right? If that's you, just just stick out your, your hands. Uh, just close your eyes. I'm just going to ask Jesus to come. He's been with us all, all the time, so far. Holy Spirit, do what you do. Pray, Lord. So, even now, just stand quietly before you. Some of you are sitting, might just want to kind of, just you might know some of these guys. Can you just pray for them? Pray God's blessing and grace. I pray grace on these guys. That's what we need. I think some of you guys, slightly, you will be mixed here. We're all mixed. And there might be a sense of glamour here. It's like, yeah, I want to be the guy to change, world. I want to impact the world. It's a very big thing for. Uh, those of you guys who be under 30, I think that's something posted to us. I, I want to be clear with you. There's no glamour here. Get ready for no glamour. Do you still want to do it? When no one really notices you, and no one really cares, and you don't really see the impact that you're having. You might never see it, actually. I want to ask you, do you still still want to do it? He's saying, hey, God, send me. It wasn't nice for Paul on his missionary journeys. He got beaten up a lot. He shipwrecked a lot. I'm not, I'm not being funny. I'm just saying, you know what, this is a, a serious calling. I call people sometimes to go abroad to like other countries who you don't know the language and stuff. You think that's a serious calling. This is a serious calling. Please, I'll leave this to Luke to... To follow up and weigh this but there's some people who think a serious calling is being a church leader full-time for the church I want to tell you what you guys are considering is a serious calling if you're still that still I want to pray for you Lord God I pray grace now grace for us Lord grace Lord Jesus Paul said I worked harder than all of you but not me the grace of God I pray for hard work Lord God, but not like a burden, Lord, the joy of being able to say, yeah, you know what, getting to the end of the day and say, I made a difference with Jesus in my workplace today. I want to pray for thick skin, Lord God. Pray for this thick skin against what the world throws at us, but even also sometimes what other Christians can throw at us. Say, so you're not doing the right thing. Why are you not being more spiritual? Pray for thick skin, Lord. I pray, pray most of all, for a keen keen sense of the holiness of God, Lord, that we could navigate that so wisely, Lord, and for these guys so wisely in how they live their lives. Oh, God like Daniel, who had to make these big decisions and let some things go and, and went with other things. Lord, I pray for wisdom in all of this stuff from your spirit, Lord. And I want to pray, Father, that, that King's Church Edinburgh, some of these guys here in this church, would make a difference to the city of Edinburgh. Lord, and it would make a difference to Scotland. Lord, and it would make a difference to Britain and beyond and start to start to do things and tinker with the way our nation's going to turn us back from this, this, this awful path that we're on, Lord, God Have mercy on our nation, Lord God, and would you have mercy on us using some of these guys, Father? If not us, Lord who? Lord, send us, Lord, we, we want to hear your voice and we want to respond and say here we are, send us, Lord God, and we'll be going to power your spirit, uh, Lord Jesus, we pray in your holy name, God. Just so ask you just quietly as we finish. Often we can do this very, very loudly. The heart here for me is I want God to have mercy on our nation. And I just ask each of you, just quietly where you are. If you say, Yeah, I think our nation could do with some mercy, whether you're standing or sitting, could you just ask Him again? Just ask Him for mercy. Mercy on our politicians. Mercy on the guys in the media, journalists. Oh, God, have mercy, Father. As we choose foolishness over wisdom over and over again, have mercy. In wrath, remember mercy, Lord.